0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here today with somebody who is an extraordinary thinker. You guys are going to want to buckle up for this one. We are joined by Jamie Wheel. Jamie, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: Oh, dude, uh, like we were saying before we started rolling, super sad that this isn't happening in person, but so grateful that we at least get to connect over Skype. Um, Your book, Recapture the Rapture, is is a thrill ride. It is uh, reading your books and talking to you is like taking drugs. Like I And I mean that in the most <laughs> positive way humanly possible. But you touch on things in a way that is so radically different from the way that everybody else looks at them. And man, you really hit on something in Recapture the Rapture. So I'm going to do a really bad job of summarizing the book. And oh, then all the <laughs> things that I get wrong... We're going to spend the next couple of hours parsing through because I think that um, this is a really interesting guidepost for people in terms of what we're dealing with right now. So I want to read the full title. So the full title of the book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. So first and foremost, for anybody that, you know, is uh, with their kids right now, I will, fair warning, you may want to... uh, be be cognizant that we will tread on territory that is um that is interesting and adult at times in nature um but the okay so here's my quick synopsis of the book and and we'll then parse out where I go wrong so first of all we've lost meaning in our world and that has created sort of this god-sized hole and capitalism and sort of classical liberalism is failing to deliver the solutions that we hoped would be there in the absence of something like god that you know this would spread out to all humanity and would be this wonderful utopia that has not quite worked out and if we look to our biological drivers which is a huge part of the book and part of the reason I'm so like thrilled that you wrote this because to me so often people don't acknowledge that we're all having a biological experience so if we <laughs> look at sort of the realities of our biology understand the drivers that we have then sort of this last meaning 3.0 sense of understanding the tools that we have understanding where we've come from and what this loss of meaning really means we have a chance to use what you call cultural architecture to build something new that hopefully does not repeat the mistakes of the past. And we're gonna go into extreme detail on exactly how you pull that off because you give a lot of actionable ideas. But did I get close? That's
1: awesome. All that's right. awesome. Yeah.
0: Amazing. So then I have understood the book, which was again, it was a total um thrill ride. You start with explaining how basically the world is going to end. Um <laughs> walk us walk us <laughs> Not through this
1: have your attention.
0: Yeah. Right. Walk us through the loss of meaning. I think that's maybe the most important thing for people to understand.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think the simplest thing to say is, is, is you haven't gone crazy. The world has, you know, like we can all just exhale that, especially in this last year, super acutely, but increasingly over the last four or five years, things have been getting super weird and they've been getting, you know, exponentially weird in competing and conflicting, conflicting directions, so i, I t- told the story you got to see it i was at a Singularity university conference in johannesburg about future-proofing africa and it was like there was this kind of schizoid split between what was getting discussed you know some of it was like hey we can you know we can get drinking water from clouds and we can use desalinization and we can use blockchain to provide passports for refugees so folks actually get to keep their identities also it's a really awesome innovative amazing thing you're like whoa you know like things are getting exponentially better and then there was things on exponential biology like crispr and exponential currencies like like blockchain and exponential education like online learning and exponential transportation like uber doing helicopter drone helicopters and all this stuff and i'm like wait a second everything is happening everything's going exponential but the thing in the middle of how do we make sense of all this exponential meaning isn't keeping up and you know the harvard biologist eo wilson He had a great description of this. He says, we have paleolithic emotions. It's just kind of how we are hardwired. We're 50,000 years behind this curve, (laughs) right? We've got medieval institutions and we've got godlike technology. And that sense that in our world right now, you know, things are getting exponentially better, you know, war, wars and poverty are down, nutrition is up, you know, all the all the good happy things that Steven Pinker talks about, or if you've seen those Hans Rosling TED Talks, and you're like, look at all the awesome, like, yay, I should be more optimistic, right? Um, and then you doom scroll your newsfeed, and you're almost like, there's fire, and there's Ebola, and there's COVID, and there's racism, and there's sexism, and there's tribalism, and there's fascism, and there's all the isms, You know, all the time we're like, oh, no, things are getting exponentially worse. Like, which is it? (laughs) And and it becomes totally crazy making to try and toggle between those two things and sort stuff out. So most of us, because, you know, all animals, but humans especially, we're lazy and we seek we seek efficiency. So like instead of always reinventing the wheel, we base things on predictions like I'm going to open the door the same way I opened it yesterday. And it's going to take the same amount of force to get it across the carpet and get it to slam shut behind me. Right. So we're always making energy trade-offs and shortcuts based on predictions. So one of the things we do is we look to authority figures. We say, well, what do the clever people, the smart people, the people we trust, the people in power, right? The, 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 whether that's academics or business people or clergy or, you know, or, or social groups, whomever it is. Right? We look to others to help us make sense of all that complexity efficiently. And, and so to your point about meaning, um, at the same time everything's been going hockey stick exponential in all directions, exponentially better, exponentially worse, we've seen a collapse in the two most pervasive institutions. Benign authority, so that's the academics, the scientists, right? the, the politicians, you know, all the folks in secular society. We've seen the collapse in benign authority, but we've also seen a collapse in divine authority, organized religion, right? And so – and, and in that, we've seen this kind of like giant sucking vacuum in the middle that's led to a meaning crisis. And so you know, the, the Pew Research Foundation has recently found that you know the nuns, the spiritual but not religious, are the largest and fastest growing you know, denomination in, in America. Never been – N-O-N-E,
0: not N-U-N.
1: Not Little Black Habits, but right. N-O-N-E, none of the above, right? And, and so that's novel, never happened before. So m- fewer and fewer people are kind of under the, under the big tent of church or synagogue or temple, right? And at the same time, we're seeing a collapse in the promise of modern liberalism, the sort of hashtag burn it all down ethos which is like wait um you know we were told and sold this is like that tyler dud and fight club thing you know we we were we were told we were going to grow up to be presidents and rock stars and we're not and we're pissed right and so we we see that like meaning 1.0 like all of organized religion for thousands of years promised salvation like if you believed you were saved you know but at the price of inclusion like if you didn't believe what we believed, you were damned or you were not part of the part of the party, right? French Enlightenment onwards, the kind of modern liberal order, and I don't mean liberal as in Democrat. I mean liberal in the sense of liberalism, you know, nation states, democracy, civil rights, private property, like that kind of classical definition. Um, they tried something else because they'd just come out of all the wars, the religious wars of Europe, and they're like, whoa, 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 let's not do any more of that. Let's do inclusion. Let's take salvation off the table. It's super problematic. Let's do inclusion. So all men and women are created to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, liberty, equality, brotherhood, all those good things, regardless of race, color, or creed. So meaning 2.0 said, well, let's do inclusion, but it came at the cost of salvation because that's super problematic. We're not going to touch that third round. So in this collapse right now, like every, we we need to make sense of things more than ever. It's more complicated. It's moving faster, and it's more consequential than ever. Right? Why do we had,
0: need to make meaning out of things, though?
1: Well, I mean, at the basic, we're storytelling monkeys, <laughs> you know. And and then at a, at a at a sort of higher level, we have to figure out what to do. You know, I always think of that George Clooney character in Oh Brother Where Art That, where he'd be like, damn we're in a tight spot, right? And like, we're in a tight spot. There's, there uh, are uh, intersecting, overlapping and reinforcing crises happening right now. And so it's not just any single thing and none of the challenges that we're facing stop or, or, or respect zip codes or political boundaries, right? So we actually have to, for the first time in, in humanity's life ever, expand our awareness beyond clan, tribe, clan, faith and even beyond nation state to a global perspective where we interconnect and collaborate together. It's super hard. It's really fragile. It's the boldest, baddest ass experiment we could ever hope for, but it's never been done and conditions are getting tighter. So the question is how I want
0: to, I want to tease some of that apart. So, um, we go to this becomes important because we're meaning making machines. Um, we've relied on religion up until this point to sort of give us that meaning. Science has moved us, probably been the biggest contributor to the downfall of religion. I think you would agree with that. Um, and now we have we have to make a, a heuristic. We need something that allows us to, to shorthand things. And heuristic, for anybody that's never heard that word for a long time, it stymied me. It literally is like a rule of thumb. So we have to have a rule of thumb that so we know when we pull on the door that it's going to take the same amount of energy to drag it across carpet, like the things you were talking about earlier. So I'm trying to make sense of my world. Super complicated. My brain literally compels me to tell a story about what's happening. I used to be able to clock it with the scripture. I'm not able to do that anymore. And so in a hyper connected world where in the book you refer to it as, oh, God, like fiber optic cable or neurons, it was something like that, basically computers sort of melt all the borders they bring us together because what i'm trying to figure out is why and look i think i know the answer from reading the book but why do we have to think globally is it mm-hmm. is it where you start the book which now might be a good time to to talk about the concept of choose your apocalypse um is that <laughs> why like is that the point like hey it it's it's an interconnected world Coupled with the loss of religion, that makes this necessary, or is it something else entirely?
1: Well, I mean, there's there's so many reasons why, but I think the the first is the complex, intersecting meta crisis that we're facing, and that so it's not just give me some of those. Well, it's not just climactic and you know ice shelves the size of New York calming into the ocean, and you know loss of polar bears, or this and that. It's not just you know, wildfires and natural disasters. It's not just the rise of, you know, well, I mean, look, we're talking about potentially the end of the American century and the rise of the Chinese. You know, we've seen all sorts of geopolitical, you know, moves on the chessboard. Uh, in the last few years, we are, in fact, still a nuclear world with a with a pile of those floating around. There's increasing asymmetric technologies that can wipe us all out accidentally or on purpose. And whether that's bioterror and gene editing or CRISPR or, you know, you, or you name it or, you know, or weaponized viruses, there's there's infinite amounts of that. And that's kind of never been. True. The, the, you know, the the archetypal 400 pound guy in his, you know, in his mom's basement with a laptop like that guy can actually unplug the whole thing right now. That's never been that's never been possible.
0: So the um, the um, the doomsday clock, which was originally created around nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, let's broaden that now to all the things that you just talked about or, or, you know, lump them all together to sort of the state of the world and the way that we can destroy ourselves. If you had to pick a time. So it's, you know, how close to midnight, midnight being what was originally sort of the nuclear winter, um, mm-hmm. how close to midnight do you think we are?
1: Well, I mean, I defer to a bunch of smart atomic scientists. And, and as and I, of, I
0: want to make sure that we're not just talking atomic stuff. I'm talking sure. all of that.
1: Yeah, 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 like metasystemic risks. So those guys, as of 2020, and then they, they kept it the same for 2021, they said we're at 90 seconds to midnight. And that's closer than during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's closer than any any other time or event uh, that we've experienced since 1947. So that alone is bracing, you know, and there's been the (laughs) U.N. reports which have been updated and saying, hey, we have 10 years to figure this out. And whoops, now another year or two or three has gone by. And, you know, those dates may or may not be holding. In general, what's been happening is that most forecasters in a specific discipline, right, that could be Antarctic researchers or that could be political analysts or that could be you know you name it to take a pick of a specific field Most of them have been running their calculations But understandably they're somewhat in their silos and then typically what happens is when they get to a conference Or they're doing something where they swap notes with other people also modeling other things. They're like, oh shit Didn't think of that one. Let's put that back into our model and then you have these kind of things where um, I mean, you know, I am a creature of my time. I always think of like Empire Strikes Back, right? Where where those big at hats come clunking along and then they get whipped, you know, whipped with the ropes and there's like, doosh, doosh, doosh. And then finally they fall over and explode. And we're kind of like, we're down on at least one knee right now. And so the question is, you know, can we muddle through this? You know, it's tempting to be like, oh, yeah, you know, someone's always saying the end is nigh. Right. Someone is always crying doom and gloom, and that's how they get attention or followers or sell whatever their solution is and that kind of thing. And that's that's 100 percent legit. Right. The apocalyptic fantasy has been around for thousands of years and it's just hasn't ever come you know, showed up on time. So we really do have to like there's a there's a high bar to say, well, are we absolutely certain that we're not just in another one of those? Right. Every round number on the calendar, every big meteor event or strange, you know, or volcanic eruption that's done something wiggy or weird, you know, has always prompted people to think and feel and say these things and act accordingly. The only question is, is is this different? And are we are we actually like against all odds is our generation, the one who kind of drew the golden ticket? Because, you know, you mention you know, a minute to midnight. Right. And. The thing that I, you know, that I think is really interesting, Kurt Vonnegut, the famous author who wrote Cat's Cradle, he wrote Slaughterhouse Five, he was actually studying anthropology at the University of Chicago. And, and you can Google this, you, you can look it up on YouTube. He has a fun, a cool lecture about it. But he talks about the shape of stories. He's like, all stories have basic shapes. And they kind of fit in only to a in only a handful of buckets. And he's like, you know, the common one is like rags to riches. That's down, rags, your dirt poor, and then riches, up. So down to up and he's like and then there's kind of the boy meets girl one which is like you know they meet cute in the cafe and then for stupid contrived reasons they they fall apart so that's up then down and then boom then they immediately they, they waltz off into the into the sunset so so up then down then up again and then he noticed he's like actually though the one that we love the one we cannot get enough of is the Cinderella story and the Cinderella story right is the whole you know down You know, like stepsisters and sweeping ashes and miserable stepmother up, you know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, fairy godmothers and a wonderful gown and dancing with the prince. Midnight, clang pumpkins, you know, lost, lost slipper and everything, super duper down. Everything is lost for the ultimate happily ever after ever. And so if you think, well, where are we in our story? Back to us being storytelling monkeys, like we search for meaning and we need narrative that explains where we are and why, and therefore what we should do next together. Then we're at, you know, a minute before midnight. And so we have to actually be willing to lean into that drop. It's like skateboarding or snowboarding or anything. Like you're standing on the lip of something steep. You don't fall back away from it. You actually have to lean into it to stick the landing And then what do we do and how do we get to the greatest, like the the best happily ever after in the greatest story ever told, you know, the history of humanity?
0: All right. So in the book, you refer to the omega point, which I assume is what you're referring to here. Um, One thing, though, before we get to that, that I think is important to cover is. You're careful in the book to say, you know, the notion of just burning it all down is very naive. And to think that, you know, you would be better off to burn it down um, and then rebuild something from scratch is ignorant of history. And you talk about, in fact, I'd love to, because I don't remember the exact um, stat, but it was like from the fall of Rome until <laughs> some period in the future. The it took
1: a Declaration of Independence.
0: So get, give that whole stat because that's very sobering.
1: Well, yeah, just just that, you know, in whatever it was, AD 400 or roundabouts, uh, you know, when the Vandals sacked Rome, you know, it roughly took until the Declaration of Independence 1776 for us to get back to the same standard of living, you know, and you're like, hmm, man. And so when you hear like seasteaders or cryptocurrency folks or Alt-right accelerationists, I mean, basically accelerationists of any type and all accelerationism means is let's actually accelerate the unraveling. Let's not fix stuff because we are convinced that it, the sooner this all comes, up to, comes apart, the quicker we're going to get the chance to build our favorite utopia. And I think the reality is it's just those folks, you know, they're, they're typically single dudes. <laughs> you know right i mean i mean you know in the sense that they they love to be in their eye, mind's eye and they don't want to have to deal with the hassles and the complexity and the humanity of what's right in front of us so then they fantasize about a blank slate where they get to build their perfect model train set and the reality is, is, like, it's guys, it's going to be a smoldering wreckage. You're never going to get to build your perfect train set, and some Mad Max motherfuckers are going to come in and run the joint, you know. And, and your weak ass is not going to become the new emperor, you know. So, so those are the kinds of things that I think, you know, and, and it shows up, it shows up anywhere. It shows up on the, the 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 movements towards social justice, where they're like, let's disassemble the Western canon, let's stop teaching any of the things that have Implicitly have you know racism or oppression um, you know implied or or inferred it's it's all that stuff and it just feels to me now granted there are actual schisms happening right now there are people that do not believe in a global humanist project that everyone everywhere should be entitled to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness we're already seeing the move into Tribalism, right? Where they're saying no, no, no. we're not even we're not even shooting for that. We're not even giving that lip service. We want to smash, grab, and win. And so, kind of buried in our current culture wars and our current sense of of crisis and what to do about it, and the anxiety and the grief, but also the rage, um, is I think the simplest way to describe it is it's a it's a contest between playing the finite game, right? Win lose me and mine, versus recommitting to the infinite game, which is win-win. And the point isn't to end the game victorious. The point is to keep keep playing for as long as possible with as many people as possible. Okay. And then, Right?
0: I, I'm going to put a, a pin in that because now okay. we start getting into a part of the book where I – I really want to believe in your, um, the Omega point where we sort of all get it, we're willing to, um, take that dip, which I think you're going to need to define exactly what that is, but, um, you know, that we come back on the other side and we've got this sort of humanitarian project and it's, it's all encompassing, but. The thing that I loved most about your book, which is, hey, you're having a biological experience and you're so honest about, all right, we have to take into consideration that these are humans. Humans act some kind of way. They have a brain. It compels them to do some crazy shit. You go into a lot of stuff about sex, really powerful. We will definitely talk about that. But the idea that everyone is going to be willing and or capable of showing deference to, you know, sort of humanity all-encompassing, without the arrival of aliens, which you actually talk about in your book, um, <laughs> I I don't think it's possible. Like I think that that yeah. is so far outside of the realm of reality that mm-hmm. we crash into what you were just talking about, which is, hey, everybody's got utopia on the mind. Sounds great. It's the experiment has been run. It hasn't worked. Um, everybody goes no 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 that it wasn't done right you know socialism communism whatever it just like let me give it a shot and i'll show you how it works and then mm-hmm. you get to the problem about you know your um soft ass i believe is what you said is not <laughs> going to be elected emperor it's going to be a hardcore motherfucker that comes in and is like yo might makes right smash and grab they do what they want they run roughshod history literally If people aren't looking at history, that's really terrifying because it's people that have run a lot of experiments for you to figure out exactly how humans react in a given situation. And when you create destabilization, what rises is not peace and love. What rises is might and, uh, power and aggression. And so that gets real scary, real fast. So how do you think through that? Like, how do we, what is the drop? Let's start there. And then, how do we make sure that people rebuild something that makes sense? Not rebuild—that's not the right word, because you're very careful to say this is going to be sort of additive layers versus destruction. So, I want to understand in in your world, what is the drop?
1: The Cinderella story drop?
0: Yes, you said we're you know we're a minute before midnight. We have to lean into the drop. What's the drop?
1: Well, I mean, the short answer is we can't possibly know from here, right? It, it's too complicated. Does it imply something
0: yes. bad though, like? Well, Some I mean, breaking
1: points? That, yeah, if I, if I had to guess, right, I would say we kind of run out of imaginary money. Um, we have to make transitions on energy sources that um, global. I mean, we've seen a lot of it in the last four years, you know, accelerated by accelerationists. But the unraveling and unwinding of a lot of global treaties, compacts, cooperation and probably a retrenchment that's either, you know, all-encompassing or just kind of a little bit at a time, and you don't really kind of notice, into nationalism and even bioregionalism. So, so there will be, you know, and then quite likely an increase in intense weather events, a potential impact on food supplies, increasing tightness around natural resources, and obviously, excuse me, obviously water is one of the main ones. Um, but, you know, we're at peak sand right now right? Like Saudi Arabia is importing sand from India and Australia to build with. Like you would think sand, what the hell, go pound sand, right? We literally use it as a total pejorative. We are running out of sand to build shit. In the last three years, China poured more concrete than the United States did in all of the 20th century. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, what? I didn't even know that was a thing, you know? And so, so yeah. Um, And you know, now of course, There will be techno utopians who are like, ah, that's just you know, that's just hysteria. We always invent stuff, we'll create stuff, and then they always trot out the story of you know, late 19th century New York and Chicago were up to their ears in cow shit. I mean, horseshit, you know, and it was it was a big huge problem, and then we invented the automobile. But you're like, yeah, but. We also just figured out how to stick straws in the ground and set on fire a whole bunch of dead dinosaurs all at once. So we just like got this like payload of millions of years of accumulated starlight in the form of compressed photosynthetic plant material turned into petrochemicals you know, that we just set on fire. And that worked, and it was like woohoo! And the question is, it's just can we make it to the next stepping stone in the river? And
0: right, here's what's possible, interesting right? to me about that. So we haven't run out of oil yet. So if this is really people fighting over energy, it, it it begins to feel and here is maybe my very fumbly thesis. And I hope everybody will forgive me for thinking out loud on camera, which is a very dangerous game in today's world. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, I hope that it helps, you know, somebody. So When I look at this, I say, okay, I'm really having a hard time reconciling all the things that have gotten better, right, that we're getting close to eliminating global poverty um, and by by like pretty objective standards. Mm -hmm. And that things, you know, the Steven Pinker um, argument or the Matt Ridley argument, the rational optimist that, you know, you're looking at just year after year, decade after decade, of progress, it doesn't make any sense to say, "Oh, all of a sudden we're going to go backwards," and this feels without diminishing the real problems that we have. it feels like our narrative about our problems has become the problem, and given rise to what you're referring to as accelerationist so again, I just want to state emphatically, I'm not saying that we don't have problems, and that's all delusion. I'm just saying hmm. we've always had problems, and in fact, those problems yes. have been horrendous so yeah. much worse and so much. these problems are just getting they're getting more um solvable like it feels like we're getting closer and closer to things being better and so it's odd to me that as things are getting better the narrative the internal feeling is no 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 it's accelerating it's way worse like this is madness we're 90 seconds we're closer to annihilation than we were uh during the cuban missile crisis right
1: mm-hmm
0: And so I'm just like, this feels like a narrative problem. This does not feel like a reality problem.
1: Well, well, I mean, I I would I would sort of agree and then also flip it and agree with the opposite, which you could also say, no, it's a reality problem. (laughs) Right. Because we're actually entering because of
0: the narrative, like people are reacting the way they're reacting. And therefore, it doesn't matter if it's narrative. It just is happening.
1: Well, because the reality is that we are, we are caught at the intersection of the arc of coming alive, which is always the happily ever after. Anyone who grew up to be president or an astronaut. What's my hashtag best life? Who's my soulmate? Twin flame. What's my wonderful entrepreneurial experience? Where do I want to go? What do I want to travel? What do I want to see and who and be that coming alive, right? Basically, the sort of the gift we were collectively given between 1945 and say 2008, you know, which was just, yay, upwards, onwards, right? Versus the staying alive arc, right? Which is triage. It's like, wait a second, maybe I don't have the time, the money, the resources. Maybe, you know, what we've seen with real estate prices in all rural rural New York, everyone's getting the hell out of Manhattan. All the mountain towns in Colorado. I'll pay triple your asking price. Let me get the fuck out of LA, right? All these things. We're starting to see people move because they're getting a sense that the music's about to stop. And do they have a chair they actually want to be caught sitting in, right? And that, Coming alive and staying alive out is crazy making. It is exponentially complex. And so our narrative, what most people do is they can't hold both, so they just pick one, right? And if you just pick it's all staying alive, then you end up a paranoid prepper in northern Idaho eating canned food out of your basement. Right. Playing Red Dawn, you know, and if you just go to the Pollyanna staying alive or, or coming alive, then you fuck off to a beach retreat in, in Costa Rica, you know, and do yoga and ketamine until the wheels fall off. Right. And so right. And so like these are the challenges. The question is, is can we the narrative challenge I would propose is actually can we acknowledge that both are true? It's an incredibly complex quadratic equation. We don't know how it's going to turn out our participation in it plays a big part in how it turns out. So we need to be vigilant and subtle and adaptive and responsive all at once. In today's highly
0: unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus of these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply that strikes me as a big ask my friend
1: <laughs> well to your point about globalism you're like i don't think we're gonna get there i agree I agree. I think actually, if you kind of feel what's happening in society right now, my sense is is like you know, back to the Pax Americana, like the American peace that was 1945. We kind of won the war. We nipped in, nipped out, kind of took the took the gold ring, but took none of the hits. So, like, not only was Japan, you know, uh, um, atomized, but Europe, good guys and bad guys, was bombed into ruin. And then we set up Bretton Woods. We set up the World Bank and the IMF. And we ran the table and we funded everybody. And we built the world we came to dominate, right? Now, that is – is, you know, that included – the 1960s and the counterculture that included the personal growth explosion, new age, the introduction of psychedelics, the introduction of, you know, gestalt workshops and landmark and all the things. Right. So you're kind of like, man, if we didn't get to like that was a pretty damn lucky little bubble in history. And, you know, half century of you know, unprecedented prosperity, stability and opportunity. If we didn't figure out how to become bodhisattvas. Mm, i I don't think we're going to suddenly stop figuring it out now so that was our crack at it and we can be absolutely grateful to it but i think it's in the rearview mirror so the question to me is more like well what's healthy tribalism because if you see the impulse in, like like christian nationalists white identitarians that kind of thing right um and and it's even got weird echoes in putin's russia which is kind of part of the reason and how, like Steve Bannon's of the world and all these things. You're like, wait, Russia, what's was the bad guys? How'd they suddenly become our friends? And what's that going on about? And it's a very masculine, white, anti-homosexual, like pro-Christian kind of thing. You're like, wow, that's a strong, strong urge to belong and to be part of something and to be part of a group. And you can see that on the far left as well. You can see all these movements where people are like, screw it. We can't figure this out. Now, those are unhealthy tribes, right? Because they're based on race, they're based on identity, they're often strongly othering the other. But what if we actually said, well, what's the health, what's healthy tribalism? And healthy tribalism is community. Healthy tribalism is rooted in place. Healthy tribalism is like, we, you know, this is our these are our neighbors. This is our watershed. This is the place where we get by. And when, and when communities rally in fires or droughts or floods and various things, you see it. But you're like, those, those ties have been getting weaker and weaker. I mean, Vivek Murthy, the former U.S. Surgeon General, just wrote a book about this. And I think it's called Together. And it's, and it's just this idea of how fragmented, isolated, alienated, and alone we are. And obviously, quarantine is just you know 10x that. But so what is healthy tribalism? I think it, it, it get, it's like re-stitched together community bonds. Because like Brock Long, who's the head, the head of FEMA, <clears throat> I mean, last year, he's like, yeah, folks, um, you know, you need to really, like Americans, you need to stop thinking of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Association, as 911. Yeah, not it. Right? We don't have the skills. We don't have the people. We don't have the resources. Like, you're on your own. When shit goes really upside down. So I think actually fostering healthy regression or regression to healthy tribes rooted in place, rooted in community that are self-sufficient and can look after themselves and each other. And including the the most needy uh, and least, least privileged folks within that community, that feels like a really important move for us to start making.
0: Okay, so let's start um... – figuring out how we do that through the lens of the book. So you've got this need for people to broaden out their sense of, um, connection of their sense of tribe. You go into great detail in the book about, um, what you call ethical cults. And I'd love for you to walk people through. I thought this was really interesting that all cults basically have these, I think it was four things in common. Um, and then sort of differentiating between, you know, a cult and then an ethical cult and how that feeds into this notion of community.
1: Yeah. So, and, and when you were saying the four things, were you thinking of the rapture ideologies or were you thinking of the three? Oh, you're different-
0: right. The, the four were rapture ideologies, but you do tie, tie in, um, you go through a list of things that like are the signifiers of a cult. Like basically, hey, if any of these things are true and you go through a bunch of them. Oh, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I, you're right, I was melding two, two ideas there. Sorry about that.
1: No worries. Um, so yeah, I mean, just this, this idea of, you know, so, so the middle, the, the first part of the book, which is kind of what we've been discussing right now is is playfully titled Choose Your Own Apocalypse. Right. Because the idea there is like, who knows? So it's on each of us to come to our own provisional decisions about what we think is coming, what we think is happening next. And therefore, what should we do about it? The middle section of the book is called the alchemist cookbook. And that's saying, hey, how do we build for ourselves the things that used to be the, the toolkit of religion? And so how do we you know, find inspiration reliably? Because otherwise life's a bitch and then we die. How do we heal our trauma because we take a bunch of hits in this world and otherwise we all end up with PTSD? And how do we connect to each other? And so the third part of the book that, Tom, you just talked about is ethical cult which is saying, okay, the world's going off the rails, part one. There's nowhere to go. We have to figure this out, right? Part two, here's how we have peak experiences and deep healing. Oh, but, like, yay, wouldn't that be enough? No, it's not, because every time you have ecstatic experiences and cathartic experiences in community, you tend to end up with culty communities, right? So that's that's why part three is all about, like, how do we put this into gear and into culture Without putting it in the same ditch that it keeps getting put in, right by cultic practices. And so, what's interesting is that the, you know, and my background, my my uh, academic background is as, as an anthropologist. So, did a lot of kind of comparative religious studies and that kind of thing. And so, within academia, you use the word cult very differently, because it simply means a mystery school or practice outside state sanction. Right. So Dionysus had a cult. Kali had a cult. Right? The Ulyssinian mysteries were a cult. Even early Christianity, before the Roman emperor Constantine made it the state religion, was a cult. And the Latin term is cultus. And that just means to worship. So you're like, oh, OK. So a, a traditional cult just was a group of people worshiping together right and and david foster wallace the writer you know he wrote that i mean he he gave that really famous graduation speech uh, called this is water so good right right so good and and, he, and in that he has one of one of his more memorable lines he's like everybody worships the only question is what right and you got to be really careful what you pick to worship because anything other than something divine and sublime right is going to eat you alive So the differentiation between different types of cults, traditional cults, you subjugated yourself, you said, okay, I'm gonna bow down and I'm gonna follow the instructions. It was subjugation of self to the lineage. There may have been a priest, there may have been an officiant, but they were one in a long line and they kind of answered to tradition and they answered to elders, right? So it was relatively stable and relatively safe. In the, you know, let's say 1950s through 70s and then kind of, you know, forever onwards, we then had a lot of gurus breaking with their lineages. And they said, I'm a new covenant. I'm a clean slate. Never mind any of that shit that came before me. You subjugate to me a higher self. But there's no ballast. There's no lineage. There's no tradition. There's no elders anymore. And that obviously became super problematic. And that's how we got drinking the Kool-Aid with Jim Jones. That's how we got Charlie Manson. It's also how we get you know, weak versions like Nexium. And heaven's gate. (laughs) So
0: I think this is actually a really important part of your thesis. I'd love for you to explain. So what this what this seems to bring together for me is the idea that, hey, I get that you want to tear down the current structures because they're not delivering all that they could, but it becomes problematic when you don't have checks and balances. And the sort of um, one of the ideas that that has come out of 2020 for me is this idea of The real magic is in the friction between uh, liberals and conservatives that you actually need both and that the human impulse you can sort of divide people into. Do you lean a little more towards one way or the other, forgetting the extremes? Just do you lean more towards like empathy and, hey, we need to take care of everybody? Or do you lean a little towards? Yes, but we also need to take personal responsibility and that you don't want either one of those things to run rampant. Because they yeah. become um, evolutionary problems is probably the easiest way to think of it. Meaning, if you only have um, empathy as your driving thing, we never go anywhere because no one's ever striving, and you get people that take advantage of that that sort of drag the society down. And on the other hand, if you never think about other people and it's just sort of individualistic and take care of yourself, you can see how the society doesn't really ever form. So mm-hmm. it's it's in this sort of ebb and flow, the back and forth friction between the two. So I is it accurate? So, go ahead. I just said 100%,
1: like exactly that.
0: Yeah, that to me is what I see lurking in what you're saying now is that, okay, if you have a cult or uh, you make a joke in the book, I forget who said it, but the only difference between a cult and a religion is how much real estate they own. <laughs> that was Frank, Zappa. Frank Zappa. Uh, it's a great <laughs> quote. Um, and this idea of, okay, when you become the new lineage as the cult leader, now there's no checks and balances. You're removing yourself from that the the flock the group the tribe whatever we're gonna call them from saying hey that's not how we've done it in the past and so now as you uh, you know break so far free of that that you're not anchored to anything then you can drift into the madness of you know the Kool Aid and helter skelter and all that stuff um, but also you can see how if you remain stuck that that will also calcify so it's like you need that you need some like departure from the past without that clean break. Is that—is that, is that a, a good read on what you're talking about?
1: Well, for sure. I mean, I think we obviously have to be, I mean, there's sort of, you know, Ecclesiastes, like there's nothing new under the sun, right? So like all we're ever doing is reinventing and repurposing and stitching stuff together that is, you know, what, what is old is new again kind of thing. So, you know, huge hat tip to the past and we're, we forever have to re, recreate so that it feels fresh and relevant and timely and helpful for us. Um, there's there's a, there's several issues because the thing that in a lot of like cult exposés, documentaries, etc. Um, there's there's almost always the situation of like, but how did but such a bunch of smart, young, clever, talented people fall for such a thing, right? And whether that's movie stars or heiresses or you know homecoming queens or varsity quarterbacks, and you know that's true, th- you know, via from Nexium all the way back to the Manson family. And, and, and on the heels of that is almost always like, oh, guru with feet of clay, huckster, shyster, was really only in it for the power, the sex, the money, the whatever. And that is true for a whole bunch of low to mid-level cults. But the ones that I couldn't solve for, I was like, well, wait, what's going on here, were the ones who actually were early badasses, right, adepts. They had pretty give us an example? So Adida would be one. Osho would be another. There's a, I mean, there's a Chogyam Trungpa would be another, like they were legit.
0: none of these people. I feel very, okay, so, very uneducated right now.
1: No, it's okay. So, so Chogyam Trungpa was a Tibetan scholar. He, he came to the West. He was schooled at Oxford. He then came to America. He started the Naropa Institute in Boulder, and he was one of the major bringers of Tibetan Dharma to the West. Right and was badass, I mean he's the one who coined the term spiritual materialism. he had all sorts of cool insights, but the community he also died at I think like forty six of cirrhosis of the liver because wow. he was drinking so much because you you take somebody out of a monastic tradition in the East and you're suddenly like in the West, and that was a corrupting influence. Osho came up through. Um, the, the, the Indian experience and kind of continue to leave that behind. And then he came to this country. Um, Adi Da was actually a, a Westerner. He, was, he grew up in Queens, I think, and then came to California. Super duper smart. And everybody, like there's still shockwaves from Adi Da's lineage. People who were close to him and, and got turned, you know, lit up by him that are now second and third generation teachers. But he also got bent. So my inquiry was always like, well, wait, what's happening with those guys? Not like the Keith Raniere twits, right? That guy's just a fucking multi-level marketer with a little bolt on a landmark, you know, and you know, you know, and, and, and a bit of a horn dog to scratch, right? So not those guys, but actual transmitters, realizers, and how do they get bent? And and I think that the one of the first things is they grab the ring of power right and that's there's that sense because there is something that happens in sort of tribal primates right when one person gets sufficiently advanced to boot up and then light up others, what happens and 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 almost always right there's there's four basic Feelings that we have and this, this work comes from Lisa Feldman Barrett who has she's a she wrote She's actually one of the top 100 most cited scientists in the world um, she, she has appointments at Northeastern University and at Harvard med school and she wrote a kick-ass book called how emotions are made mm. And she's like she's like all that theory of constructed emotions And you can monitor micro muscles on the face and tell people what they think She's like That's actually way more cultural than you'd think but at our root is interoception, like what do we feel in our guts And she's like, it's only four things. It's just a quadrant. It's like, am I feeling positive or negative? And am I feeling active about that or passive about that? Right? So active positive is joyful. You know, active passive is content. Right? Negative, negative active is rage. And negative passive is depression. Right, so that's that's just kind of it, and then we assign emotional labels, and we assign plot and characters, and who's to praise or blame for the way I feel right now. Right, we do all the transactional analysis games people play, kind of shit. But at our root, it's one of four things, and so when we experience an avatar, right, a human who has really stepped up above and beyond, we tend to have one of four feelings. We want to, if you know, the first one is active, passive, like, oh my gosh, they're amazing, they're so beautiful, I want to follow them. Right. And then if you get really lit up with the Holy Ghost feeling, right, then you're like, I actually want to merge with them. I really want, I want to, I want to actually fuck them. Right. You, and it could be, it can be heterosexual, homosexual, erotic. It can be confused because, like, I've never felt this much ever outside of physical attraction. So I get my wires crossed. And you know, in the Greek terms, it's eros and agape, right? Agape is kind of spiritual love, and eros is obviously erotic love. And sometimes, if I've never felt agape before, I, get, I probably confuse it. The only tag I have in my body brain is this must mean love and passion. And you see this even in evangelical megachurches. There's all kinds of fornicating that goes on, right? People <laughs> cannot keep the Holy Ghost feeling under wraps, right? So, so the first one is to follow him. The next one is to fuck him. But then, if it all gets too much, right? And suddenly I feel like in, I'm, I'm in deep water, or I have friends or family that are like, you've just joined a cult, or you've lost your mind, or you know, you're getting, then, then I start to fear them. And that could even have been with a good person that that avatar could have been like, hey, I'm going to help you let go of things, I'm going to help you let go of your ego. And your ego is going to say, mayday, mayday, red alert, this is, a, this is a survival situation. So you fear them. And then the final one is if, Either you have the capacity yourself, or you get into a crowd, and this, you know, cancel culture is a micro version of this, which is you then want to fight them, you want to take them down, and this is the pitchforks, the torches, and 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 the crucifixes, right? Which is we have to eradicate this person because their very existence actually threatens our worldview. So, so those are the four, you know, follow, fuck, fear, and fight. That (laughs) most humans, most times, that's our response to one of these exceptional humans, right? So the question is, is what's in the middle of all that? To your point about it's both, like, you know, liberal, conservative, all those things. What's at the center? And that's, can we feel it? Can we actually, when someone hits the gong, and we're like, oh, I resonate with that, that's true for me too. Can we feel it? And can we step up and own our own power? And that's really hard, and we tend not to want to do it. We'd almost, almost, we'd so much rather just collapse into a family dynamic. That's a mother or a father. I get to follow them. And, and Stephen, uh, well, actually Robert Johnson. I think that's right. I think it's Robert Johnson, the Jungian psychologist, um, coined a phrase, which I think is beautiful. He calls it the golden shadow. And the golden shadow, people are probably familiar with like shadow, shadow in psychological work, which is like the things I disown about myself. Right. That guy's an angry asshole. I'm not. (laughs) You know, that kind of a thing. Right. But the golden shadow is the exact opposite. The golden shadow is the things that are that is our own capacities, our own strengths, our own greatness that we deny for ourselves. And then we project onto a guru. So I'm not that spiritual, but they are. I'm not that awakened, but they are. I'm not that insightful, but they are. And the challenge for the guru. And this is gets back to the grabbing the ring of power right? Is if they actually accept that gold. So everyone comes and they bestow their gold onto the neck of the guru. And the guru is like, are you not entertained? Right? And, and then, but over time, that gold drops them to their knees. No one is that strong and it takes their community with them.
0: Yeah, that is, uh, that, that goes back to this idea of, okay, how do we get to this global ideal where we're taking everybody into consideration when you have, and this was my favorite part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy is when, unfortunately, I don't know Lord of the Rings very well, but the Cate Blanchett elf character takes the ring, turns into like the beast. And then she's like, ah, and I can give it back. And for her, that was like the test to feel just how powerful she could get. And then to hand the power back over. The funny thing is that that is, a very good analogy to being a CEO. So yeah. Yeah, when yeah, yeah. I I fought so hard to rise up when I was first an employee and just working my way up to really becoming an entrepreneur, I fought so hard to get to the top. And then when I got to the top, I realized, oh my God, this is all gonna implode unless I can give away that power and make sure that everybody feels that they can challenge me, that they don't need to give me any deference because of my position. <laughs> and And that really came from like a super selfish place of recognizing I just wasn't talented enough or smart enough to solve all the problems by myself. And I had to find a way to get the best out of everybody else. And the only literally the only solution out of desperation, I don't expect anybody to think that I'm clever for this. Just out of desperation was like, fuck, I have to not in any way, shape or form make them cow before me. Like I have to go way out of my way. To uh-huh. make them feel safe and that they can speak up. And if I do something that's dumb, that they can just say that's dumb, that they don't have to worry about hurting my feelings. And again, just because knowing that if I'm going to get where I want to go, I have to give that away. And so when I think about, A, that's hard, right? Because it's rad to be in charge. It is rad <laughs> to be at the head of the company. I'm not going to lie. Right? Like It's amazing. If you can deal with, you have to be the one to make the decisions. Um, mm-hmm. Because that can stress people the Fuck out. There is no going home when you're the CEO. You're thinking about it 24-7. But if you can deal with that part of it, it's really quite um, amazing. So how do we get, like, now we're beginning to recognize it. We see everybody handing you the gold is going to be a real problem. Um, We'll go more into the weeds uh, probably right after this about the... um, The Lisa Feldman Barrett notion of, look, you're just feeling shit in your body. And until you have awareness and control over that, like you're or tell yourself a better narrative is probably a better way to think about it, about what you're feeling, you're going to be trapped forever. And and the um, the deep element in the book that you have, it's the only thing where uh, in the book sex, part one and part two, nothing else gets a part one and part two. So sort of telling you how powerful this is, is a way to um, sync back up maybe with something more. Um, elemental and profound, but again, we'll set that aside. So, how then, knowing the difficulties that human beings will have to give the ring back,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how do we move forward?
1: Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful question, right? And I mean, and, and I think you know the whole premise of the book for folks that are kind of familiar with. Either technology or or cryptocurrencies you can kind of the, the analogies are the same. <clears throat> I think our intention is to say, hey, any single solution is either going to just be instantly out of date the moment you know the world is unfolding faster than our plans, um, or that all tops down solutions end up fascist and totalitarian over time or just bad and not quite right so like if you're if um Boris Yeltsin like famously. Came to the United States to to check out the Houston Space Center, and then he had a day off, and he had he had his handle, she's he's like, I want to go see the real Americas. So they dropped him off at a Randall's grocery store, which is kind of one of the chains in Texas, and he was just gobsmacked. He's like, Are you fucking kidding me? Like, there's all these open freezer bays with with you know, TV dinners. There's pudding pops. There's like what? He's like, even even um, our Politburo doesn't get access to this. If anybody in Moscow saw this, there would be revolution in the streets. And he basically went home completely crestfallen, forgot all about NASA, and was like, that grocery store, man. And he he was like, how did it happen? And what it was was, you know, it was the invisible hand of the free market, right? It was a thousand autonomous decisions operating seamlessly all at once to produce, you know, grocery store greatness. And, you know, Bill Gates has been getting, you know, taken through the ringer in the last year or so, especially (laughs) around vaccines. But actually, one of his other projects at the Gates Foundation is an even – I think simpler, clearer example of the problem of tops down answers no matter how well intentioned, right? So a bunch of smart people at the Gates Foundation, they crunched all the numbers, they're like, we got millions and millions of dollars, how do we save the world, do the best thing? They're like, okay, malaria kills the most people anywhere and wouldn't you know it, people get bitten at night and so 10 bucks, you know, spend 10 bucks, buy a mosquito net, save a life, that's it, we're gonna go do that. And they did it in Africa and they did it in, in around Lake Tanganyika and, what was, and so they pumped all the money, they distributed all the nets, And then they came back a few years later and they realized, oh, my God, no one's using them to sleep with. This is a food-scarce area on the edge of a lake. 87% of the mosquito nets were being used to catch fish and further deplete the fishery because people were starving and hungry. And it wasn't that the Gates Foundation was nefarious or stupid. They were well-intentioned and well-informed. But what happened, the folks representing all the clinics in Africa were like, Look, they're trying to they're trying to do tech bro solutions to complex problems of rural indigenous poverty, and it's a wicked problem. And so anything you optimize for, especially from headquarters far away, is almost always going to be wrong by the time it gets there. It's the same with big military supply chains versus special operations guys in the field. You know, it shows up all over. So the question is,
0: before you move on from that, the um, that ties direct for anybody sort of that hasn't heard the Boris Yeltsin grocery store story. It ties directly. If I remember right, one of the most famous quotes from that is him saying, uh, but who makes the decision on how many, whatever blocks of cheese to order people are like, what do you mean? Who makes the decision? It's like every grocery store makes a decision for themselves based on demand. And, but like in a country where everything had to run through the bureaucracy, that was, he didn't even contemplate that you would just give the power over essentially to the market. Um, so that idea of the sort of decentralized decision making, mm-hmm. um, and now I'm curious to see where you're going. So I just wanted to draw that that connection for people.
1: Yeah, I think it's just it's so tempting, and right, we don't have a, a, a Stalinist communist <laughs> tops-down bureaucracy, but we do have like philanthro capitalism. Like, oh, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk or some other smart, super loaded dude is going to fix it for us. Like, kind of an Iron Man fantasy. And it's like, no, 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 no one's that smart. No one beats our collective intel- intelligence. So you could think of this entire book as basically a, an open source toolkit that is the cultural equivalent of blockchain or Linux, right? I mean, most of Silicon Valley runs on Linux, it's an open source code. And people because can. Because this
0: will ultimately boil down to the individual?
1: It will boil down to the community at a bare ass minimum, right? And that's what I mean about sort of like, you know, and in in the state of the world, you can think of those old bumper stickers you might see on Whole Foods parking lots on Subarus or, or, you know, Priuses, which was like, think globally, act locally. And I think maybe an update for that these days is grieve globally, right? Like actually open our hearts to the wound of the world right now and, and everyone and everything on it, but thrive locally right? Rally your people, come up with solutions that work where you are with what you have and what you face. And so the toolkit is not a singular top-down solution. It's here's the Lego blocks. Here's a few examples. You can build a castle or a boat or a tow truck, right? <laughs> and now we have the, the, the building blocks of culture architecture. Let a thousand, let a million experiments happen. You know, most are going to fail, but a, but, but a bunch are going to catch. And when they catch, people will look over and be like, hey, what's that they're doing? Can I borrow it? Can I see? Can we, can we try ours? And that's how we unlock human spirit, human initiative, right? To actually create enough novelty and enough solutions to help as fast as possible, as many people as possible, with as much fun as possible. Because we are wired to create. we got opposable thumbs and prefrontal cortexes and novelty fun. Yeah.
0: All right. Are you familiar with the Kulaks from Russia?
1: Yeah.
0: OK, so I hear you say that and I want it to be true. And if I hadn't read um, yeah. the Gulag Archipelago, then I I might be like, oh, my God, yes, this is it. Yeah. Uh, but so, yes, in some circumstances, the soil is such that when people see other people thriving, they're like, oh, my God, teach me what you're doing so I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. But there are also times where people look at that and go, "Why is he doing better than me or why is she doing better than me?" And that's unfair, and they've got um, some undeserved advantage over me. And now I just want to tear them down, which of course is what happened. I think it was in the Ukraine where they you have this class of successful farmers, and there were all these posters put up everywhere um saying like that the you know, the kulaks are basically... Uh, the reason you have nothing is because they have too much. And hmm. so they literally rounded them up and killed them, took their land. And what ended up happening was a famine of untold proportions in the most fertile land on the planet. And so I wish I want to believe because I am fundamentally so deeply optimistic. I am hmm. startled by the estimation that people think that we're 90 seconds. I, I, I edge up to Pollyanna in my like belief in people and, oh, my God, everybody's wonderful and they'll all like get it. Um, but then I also look at history and I see something like the Kulaks. How do we avoid the human propensity for active negative feelings playing themselves out in the form of rage and tearing down um, somebody who has more than me because it feels unfair?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude, I mean, I think that's super true and potential. I mean, Mugabe in Zimbabwe, right, did the same thing and, and you know, like did a lot of repatriation and, and turfed out um, a lot of the white colonists and farmers, you know, from Rhodesia. Uh, and then there was just kind of a decimation of the infrastructure and the fertility and the abundance of that uh, that country. Um, even in the Japanese internment in the US during World War II, we used to go kite surfing in this awesome town called Hood River in Oregon, and, and Mount Hood is this beautiful snow-capped volcano, and it's got all the cherry blossoms and orchards, and, and the Japanese coming from Mount Fuji, coming from those other places, had made amazing farms. Boom, they all get yanked out, right? Thrown into internment camps, their land taken over by jealous competitive neighbors, right, and, and so you, you, we, we do see that. And I think that all goes back down to the finite game versus the infinite game, right? Because, because we are hardwired for tribalism, Right. Everybody thinks of something like oxytocin as the cuddle, you know, the cuddle drug or the love hormone or the trust hormone. But it's also the ethnocentric curb stomp your neighbor hormone. It <laughs> bonds mother to child and lover to lover, but it also bonds us against that is them. a whole new way to think about that. Yeah, okay. no, absolutely. It is a moral molecule that is a bonding device. And in fact, when people go to political rallies or, or soccer stadiums, right, and you get soccer hooligans, like what's that all about? What it's all about is that you get juiced on oxytocin being around your people, and then your ability to other, other the other goes through the roof. So basically, we regress under stress, that's not a surprise. So, you know, sort of after tribalism, right, you know, tribalism is destiny and humanism is optional. So we have to choose this. We have to choose the better angels of our nature. They don't show up by default or by accident. And that is why in the past it has taken a Lincoln. It has taken a Gandhi, a Mandela, a king. It has taken somebody to hold the higher frequency and say, hey, folks, I know we could collapse into rage here. I know we could seek the path of vengeance. That way doesn't work. Here's the higher, clearer signal. And Nancy Keene at Harvard Business School, she wrote a rad book called Forged in Crisis. And she took a look at Ernest Shackleton, Abraham Lincoln, Dietrich von Bonhoeffer, the, the pastor who tried to assassinate Hitler, uh, Rachel Carson, who founded the environmental movement with Silent Spring, and Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist. And the most amazing thing, I mean, just, I'll just tell one story. I mean, I, people are loosely familiar with Shackleton, total shit Show pulls it off anyway. But the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation, like good old Abe Lincoln, we're like, yes, and I write this to free the slaves and yay, ta-da, right? No, he was at his wits end. He had no goddamn idea. It was a desperation Hail Mary that he had no idea would do anything or work at all. And he was out of ideas. And to like steer it to that point, right? That, oh my gosh, even our heroes were human. It was confused. It was in no way a layup and it was no way a sure thing. And they had to choose the right thing and do it anyway. And those little tiny choice points, right, scattered through history. Through people we know and people will never know, that on that has turned the tide of history. Like my my, my dear friend uh, is a former uh, commander for SEAL Team Six and specifically Gold and Black Squadron, right? And he was put into Yemen to track one of the Nalia terrorists and was on you know hunting him for two years. And they went rolling in to this night op, and their it was a total it was a you know not a comedy of errors but it's sort of a shit show that night. And their vehicle got high-sided, and they suddenly they're getting they're getting intel from the overhead support planes. There's like there's six vehicles approaching from the town. They're like they're splitting up. They're starting to stagger. They're doing leapfrog approaches. Like these guys were trained militias. They knew exactly how to minimize their exposure. They had four seals and then a bunch of natives locals, right? And 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 his and his and and they could see them all night vision. It's like t-minus like t- you know thirty seconds, twenty seconds. It's approaching. Like what's happening? Here's his buddy flip off his safety, and he's got you know he's got his goggles and he's got his, his night vision and he's about to open fire and, and he was like look I know if this turns into a firefight we can, we can take care of these guys but we can't take care of the next three waves that come in support so this is our death sentence like if you pull that trigger it's the beginning of the end and and he, he just said he had this feeling and he just put his hand on his buddy's shoulder and he said just he said, just, just hold, just hold for a second and then out of the darkness there's this blah 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 and then, then from one of his guys, turns out they're fucking cousins. They come to find each other. They hug. They share a cigarette. Right. And everybody goes home alive and on their way that night. And so that story is was he was like, yeah, you have to leave space for grace. And that to me is, is like, because if, you know, I mean, I hang out with some way crazy smart folks that like make me feel like USA today. You're like, I'm like comic books and pretty pictures (laughs) and captions, you know? And I'm like, holy smokes, I have to like completely empty my brain just to keep up with them. And they run game theory analysis and they run all the complex things and and none of them pencil out. They don't. Like you would just like slit your wrist if you just listen to these data sets and you're like, okay, I just give up. I give up. It's all pointless. Right. And yet. Right. And yet there's that there's that missing piece. Like somehow we muddle through if we can leave enough space for grace and grace comes through a human who is grounded, centered, courageous, fearless. Right. And willing to do what they must at the moment they must. And that's what Nancy Keene said. She says, when Lincoln did that, when Bonhoeffer when all of these heroes have done the thing mostly anonymous often alone right it sends shockwaves through the world right and that's our force multiplier right like that's the sort of ace in the hole of heartache because we could just collapse we could just break with the burden and of, of the awareness of all the things right now you know but if we can just be like okay not my will but thy will and when the moment comes I'm here to play my part like that can change the world.
0: All right. So now how do we do that? How do we look at the evolutionary biological drives that we have to turn that into a toolkit to architect culture in a way that allows us to escape, move the clock backwards away from midnight, and thrive into the future?
1: Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, what a what a what a wonderful softball down the middle there. That is just fantastic. Um I mean, my sense is, is is that we need to get more effective and more deliberate and more inclusive about our access to healing, inspiration and connection, right? We understand the neurophysiology of those things. We, We can dive into the kind of the mechanisms like, you know, breathing. And embodiment, and sexuality, and you know sacred substance use, and music, and we can use these things to do to do all three, right? Because you know we can because you know life's a bitch, and then we die, and that's fucking hard, and we take a bunch of hits. So we have to have ways to defrog, defrag our nervous systems, digest our grief, right, and kind of reboot after all the pain and suffering. So healing's essential. Otherwise, we just get gunged up and then we are just rage monsters and we can't see or think straight. But we also have to have the capacity to have peak states because life is, you know, the burden of life is hard. Like, you know, Ernest Becker, you know, the denial of death, you know, like we we are born, we are born to, you know, comprehend the stars and we sort of, you know, you know, only to know we're gonna die and rot dumbly, you know, in the dirt. Like, how the hell do you handle that? Well, you handle it. By having access to peak states, where we're like, "Ah yes, this is awe, this is wonder right this is access to the sublime this is inspiration I remember I remember this so that's what key, that you know we set down our burdens we stand tall even for a moment we can pick a, we can pick our packs back up again right and then connection because we're we're tribal social primates and we need each other so that can deal that can deal with both our you know day-to-day micro ptsd but it can also deal with our deeper wounds you know the hits that we've taken like adverse childhood events adverse life events we can actually work loose some of that scar tissue and then we can do it together and robin dunbar um the oxford anthropologist who most folks are familiar with him from the dunbar number which is like you can you know beyond 150 people it's kind of hard to keep things together um he did a study of the san Bushmen in the kalahari and they engage in trance dancing right so they get together and they throw down right and he and he noticed something interesting he's like he's like oh um rather than during hard times they don't have time for recreation and silly things during hard times they have even more trance dances because they use them as a way to discharge their collective frictions and tensions. Right. So instead of like when Mandela, right, coming out of South African apartheid, he set up the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. It's like, hey, we're not, again, he didn't just say, hey, Whitey, you know, you, Afrikan, you Afrikaner fuckers, right? You guys had your time, now it's ours, and we're going to put the boot to you. He didn't even dismantle the Springboks Rugby Stadium, for anybody that's seen the film Invictus, right? That's a, that's a key part. He's like, he saw, he saw the finite game of apartheid. He even saw the finite game of Africana rugby. And he popped that shit up to the infinite game. He's like, oh, this is symbolic, right? This is about Rainbow Nation. This is about all of us. And and that unlocking of what Gandhi called Satyagraha, what MLK called Soul Force, like Mandela had it. And that's what transformed that moment.
0: Can you define soul force? You define it in the book. It, um, it sounded silly to me until you walked through sort of the roots of it. And yeah. then I was like, whoa, this is actually quite a powerful notion.
1: It's crazy powerful. And and, and, and just to finish that, right? So, so instead of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, you know, you go back to the Bushmen doing their tronstances. How do we create the groove in Reconciliation Committee? Right? How do we actually have ecstatic, celebratory, communal events that wipe our collective etch-a-sketch? And and we we walk out arm-in-arm with our brothers and sisters. Now, that's not always true, and there are certain interpersonal things that are going to require true sit-downs. But there's just a lot of friction and tension that just accumulates in social situations that we don't have time. We need batch forgiveness for ourselves and for each other. Right, and so groove and reconciliation committees, I think can and should be a thing. I mean, think about a flash mob where you actually got together and everybody got their yayas out, and everybody felt reset like we need these in the local level. we need these at the macro level so so that notion of of soul force is actually a, it's a beautiful story, and i didn't even know the whole the whole pot until doing the research for the book um, but it actually came from um Howard Thurman was an African-American mystic in the early 20th century, and he was one of the key inspirations for Martin Luther King and and all the others in the black civil rights movement. In fact, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Dispossessed, which like dozens of those dudes carried around with them every single day, like in their their briefcases. And in 1935, he was the first African-American interfaith ambassador to go to India, and he met with Gandhi. And Gandhi was sharing his emerging philosophy of peaceful, non-vi- you know, peaceful non-violence. And he shared the concept of satyagraha, which basically meant truth force. It means when you're so aligned with with the infinite game, basically, then you're immovable. And then there is no fight. There is no struggle. All you're doing is testifying. All you're doing is being a human bearing witness to that integral truth. And so Thurman went back to the States and... He wasn't a big talker, actually. He was very interesting. He was like, he he spoke and transmitted, but it was this like deep baritone. It wasn't like Southern Baptist preacher, like kind of rhyming and bit bopping and kind of carrying people along in a flow. He had like huge silences and you would just baritone, like transmit, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like the Lorax. And, And he was like, okay, Satyagraha, that's a mouthful, but let's call it soul force. And he gathered all of the, the young leaders at that time um, uh, of the civil rights movement, he's like, this is the thing. And before that, um, peaceful nonviolence, like nonviolent protest had been a tactic. It wasn't a strategy. So the civil rights protesters were like, well, we're not gonna piss off a bunch of cops with German shepherds, billy clubs and cannons, right? We'll get our heads busted. in And sometimes they did anyway, right? But we're not gonna do it. That was, it was tactical, right? We wanna live to protest another day. Mm-hmm. After Thurman introduced the concept of soul force it became the central guiding philosophy Right, and it was the philosophy that King attempted to manage right and the Black Panthers would come and they'd be like nah fuck this This is too slow this we need to fight back. There was all kinds of power struggles and differences of opinion but soul force carried the day and then with the impact in Selma the impact in you know the I have a dream speech right when we can meet physical force with soul force right then we can change the world and it did Right. And so Erica Chenoweth at um, Harvard Kennedy School of Government did a famous study where she was looking at that nonviolent protest around the world. And she and she studied, I think, like 19 different historical examples and ran, you know, did the did the math and concluded that it takes three and a half percent of a population. That's it. Just three and a half percent of the people in nonviolent testimony to soul force to change society. And now. You know, there are definitely critiques of that, like how applicable is that for today? You know, because it's one thing to be like, hey, I'm going to sit at the lunch counter and ask to be fed, or I'm going to sit in the front of the bus and the bus has been well-maintained and has gas in the tank and gonna to get to its destination, is running on schedule. It's another thing like when that bus is like hurtling off a cliff and you gotta figure out how to change that thing into a chitty chitty bang bang, you know, before it crashes, right? So, so where are we now? Don't know. Is 3.5% dyed in the wool and gonna work every time? Probably not. Are we there yet? Absolutely not. So how about we just like put a pin in that map and go for 3.5% as fast as possible and then we can just have a snack break. And we can look around and say, "Okay, humans, how does it look from here?"
0: Okay, so now I think this is going to tie in perfectly to where you're at. But why spend so much time in the book talking about sex? Um, am I right to assume that it's described mostly as a vehicle to get in touch with, um, to to generate an awakening of sorts?
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, the only reason it's got two chapters is because you just have to snip all the wires to the bomb because sexuality has so many loaded taboos around it. But like um,
0: sex makes an appearance in the subhead of your book. What mm-hmm. is it about sort of the the end of the world? Uh, you know, in a world where we've gone mad,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what what is the role that sex plays? And maybe we should broaden it out because you talk about the four or five things that you list and sex drugs and rock and roll under different names but those three make an appearance in this Mm um i'm curious i'm not sure how to what what umbrella to put it under what shell to put it in like to me there is this um would you call it the things that lead to an ecstatic experience like what what are those i'm
1: just saying sort of the big five evolutionary drivers right and so if we're thinking like so you think of
0: music as one of the big five evolutionary drivers
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, and Daniel Levitin uh, at McGill in Canada has written a book called This Is Your Brain on Music and makes all sorts of fascinating points, but not the least of which is that music quite likely predated language. Interesting. So it was give us, a, give us the five. Uh, respiration, embodiment, sexual uh,
0: embodiment. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean, there's a thousand ways to describe that, but some of it is Lisa Feldman Barrett, the the notion of like how our bodies and brains are functioning affects our hearts and minds. Got it. Right. At a simplest level. And then at more complicated levels, like what are some of the mechanisms of how we process pain and pleasure? What are some of the Interior strongest systems and I took a deep dive into both the vagal nerve as well as the endocannabinoid system Both of which do amazing things to like regulate our organs and our blood pressure and our digestion and our Inflammation and our healing and our responses. So like how do we actually understand how us as organisms work? And can we use that understanding to actually trigger healing and peak states together Right? So you put all you put all of the you put those five things together and they can reliably deliver everything from micro PTSD resets to PTSD deep healing and integration all the way to I mean if you really take you know all the way to peak states and ec- ecstatic states and inspiration all the way to an actual death rebirth practice and if you look across all societies you know indigenous traditional greek classical you name it right they've all had death rebirth practices
0: give me an and example
1: the, well the lucinian mysteries are one right i mean plato
0: so
1: so that was the one i that was that was the one i started uh, stealing fire with the idea of like stealing the kykeon, like like socrates is, you know you know bad boy student and then he threw a house party with it right and the idea the, the lucinian mysteries were this nine day initiatory mystic death rebirth cult and they used ferment potentially fermented ergot which had lsa which was a precursor to lsd so it was this deep dive initiation and and plato said it. he said you know the mysteries don't just teach us how to die a better death they teach us how to live a better life early Christianity. Our buddy, Brian Mero Rescue, who wrote The Immortality Key recently, um, he drew a connection between the ancient Greek mysteries and the early Christian. You're like, oh my gosh, the early Christians were psychedelic? What an interesting hypothesis, right? And you see this with shamanic initiations. You see this all over the world, which in Goethe, right, the, 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 the philosopher said, he said, he who does not know the secret, die and become, remains forever a stranger on this earth. So for all of human history, these have been pervasive. They've been central to culture, religion, philosophy, and art. They've absolutely Are they all tied to psychedelics? No, no, no. And this is what I mean. That's why there's five, not one, right? Um, there's there's lots of different ways in, and and fasting and sleep deprivation and pain, like privation, whether that's flogging or being hung up on trees or you know, or being suspended by your flesh like the Lakota Sundance, there's all sorts of ways to override a human nervous system right? And create a deep system reboot. But now, right, we have the science, we have the neuroscience, we have the psychology, we also have the comparative anthropology to be able to look at and be like, okay, that's been happening all over the place. There's definitely a there, there. What's happening? And now let's look under the hood and say, what are the mechanisms of action? To your point about like, we're, we're having a biological experience. Once you understand that, you're like, oh, we've just cracked the code on all mystical initiatory traditions throughout time and space. And here's the code, right? You're like, okay, boost endorphins, dopamine, nitric oxide, and oxytocin in your system. Increase the endocannabinoids in your system and your vagal nerve tone, right? Load up, load up your body with sensation, right? It could be um, alternating current, direct current, magnetism sound vibration pain or orgasm right use any of those or all of them right and then and then in and then do something it could be electrical stimulation to the tongue it could be a compound a pharmacological compound like ketamine or nitrous oxide or even 5-meo-dmt they all push you into a low delta wave brain state right load up the system send a pulse of energy through it and and you end up with a complete brainstem reset. Delta waves are normally not accessible during waking consciousness. They're usually only in deep and dreamless sleep, so very few people know about them, very few people study them, almost no one knows how to get to them. And that signature, and and, you know, in Carl Dyseroth, actually at Stanford has just done a fascinating study on this, and he's like, like, they had um, epileptic patients who they gave ketamine for depression, and then tracked their brains and was like, okay, you're having a dissociative experience. You're having a kind of of out-of-body experience. When you have the out-of-body experience, it seems to increase your health and well-being and your ability to manage your depression. Oh, look, it's at three hertz, which is super, super low, right? Normally, we're in beta, which is way up high, way down in three hertz, almost nodding off, almost effectively dying, right? Cease of brain activity. And, And wouldn't you know it, Now we can just electrically stimulate you back to three hertz, no drugs, right? Just electrically stimulate because now we've got the signature and now you're having the same out-of-body experience with the same antidepressive effects. So you're like, bingo. So now it's not about I don't do drugs or I do or I don't use technology or I do or I don't believe in that deity or that custom or that practice, right? You're like, oh, no, we've got the cheat codes. And the typical thing is, is like in that delta wave state, and this is, this is, I don't know why. I mean, I, I offer some potential hypotheses at the end of the book. But in that state, you get metric shit piles of information. You're basically surfing the cosmic browser. So those death, rebirth experiences that all the religious traditions and all the mystical and esoteric traditions that kept them under wraps and kept them secret and cloaked them in tons of crazy language you could never decode, you're like, now anybody can go and see for themselves anybody can actually right have that experience for themselves and it and here's the back to the open source idea let the mystery stay the mystery we don't need to make up a bunch of stories because like most religion would be somebody just happened to like get the tumbler right open up you know, open up the Ark of the Covenant, go hot damn. And they come running down the mountain and be like, guys, guys, you'll never fucking believe this. I just had the most wild ass experience. I think I'm going to start a religion. And then centuries later, you get priests and they're all playing Chinese, you know, the telephone game. And like, it all gets gobbled. It all gets calcified. And then people have lost it. And then you end up with placebo sacraments downstream that don't recreate the original experience. So now we've got the cheat codes. And now everyone can go and see for themselves. And, and because when you're in that state, the information is autodidactic. It just seems to appear in the order that you are capable of perceiving it and apprehending it. Right. Then you're like, oh, so we can just leave all the storytelling on a shelf and you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can skin this. As a theist, you can be like, oh, I've just communicated with the angels and gods of my pantheon. You can skin this as a, you know, as a rational materialist. And you're like, this is just a complex synaptic activity of my mind and some interesting fractal symmetries. It's aesthetic, it's neat, but I'm not gonna assign a goddamn thing to it, right? Or you could be agnostic. Like, hey, I appear to be accessing an information layer, but I'm not gonna presume to define it, right? So you can believe what you wanna believe, just never lose the faith, right? And that's the the faith part is key.
0: Never lose and the faith that what?
1: Just never lose the faith that that we are here. We are we are at choice. That that we are at lot, choice. I'm th- th- getting th- more
0: confused uh, here by the word.
1: Well, well, I, I'll unpack it, right? Because the reason the reason I came to that is, um. My college roommate, his, his grandfather, was a famous Quaker theologian who was the minister at Stanford. He advised Eisenhower. He was actually responsible for undoing those Japanese internment camps. And he has a beautiful quote where he says Faith is not belief without proof, right? But rather trust without reservation.
0: Okay. And so, but trust right? in what?
1: Well, here's the thing, right? That's, that is the Gnostic part. You got to like Zora Neale Hurston, right? The the, the African American poet and anthropologist. Um, she studied with Franz Boas and Margaret Mead back in Columbia back in the day. She said you got to go there to know there, right? The Taoists say you know know ten things, tell nine. Right. So this and is so,
0: where though some of this stuff starts to be in danger of going over people's heads. So yeah. I let me try to pull this down into my layman terms here. So what I love about the way that this is all laid out in the book is anchoring around. Okay, you're having a biological experience, and you have a, um, the the human experience is such that traumas will begin to add up over time Mm -hmm. or just a bad frame of reference. And the way that you're and what I mean by frame of reference is the way that you look at the world, the story you have told yourself about yourself and the way the world works is no longer serving you. It's not functional. So now you need a reset of some kind. You need something that knocks you out of that frame of reference so that you talk about this in the book. You get that little blue dot effect that the astronauts got when they were looking back at the Earth and you realize, oh, my God, like it's also small. It's also insignificant. By stepping out of your frame of reference, you see that it is a frame of reference. So going back to David Foster Wallace and this idea of this is water You don't realize that the way that you're perceiving yourself and the world is made up of choices, beliefs, things that you perceive to be immutable are actually um, probably accidental choices that you have made along the way. So we are going to use your neurochemistry as influenced Mm -hmm. by your body to give you a view back that, oh, shit, this is all These are choices. When I change my neurochemistry, I change the way I feel. One of the most astonishing things in the book, I I wrote this one down because I was like, I cannot believe this is true, that Andrew Huberman, who I think is amazing, uh, did a uh, study with mice and found that mice, when they can um, self-stimulate, would sooner self-stimulate bravery and courage than they would self-stimulate and have sex. And I thought, oh my God, like the, and you talk about how
1: that's the whole ball game, right? Dude, that's
0: insane to me. And the fact that you, you said, um, there are brain states where you feel more resilient and you want to visit trauma when you're in a brain state where you feel more resilient. And I was like, that is literally what I've been trying to get people to understand is dude, you change one little thing in your brain. You can look at the same thing and feel radically different. And. That, to me, is super intriguing. Now, it's interesting because I'm talking to the author. You obviously know better than me. But even hearing your argument, I still believe it's ridiculous. But I still believe that the whole sex thing um, has a, a more central part to that brain chemistry manipulation. And the reason it felt to me that you went into such great depth is that there is such great depth to go into when you begin to understand how you can unlock brain states because i'm not a big drug guy like i've Mm -hmm. done the um ketamine oxytocin nasal spray and was like it's basically like being drunk now maybe i just didn't do it in the right setting i didn't have intention that actually is true and maybe all of that would change it and i would feel differently but anyway Mm -hmm. but the sex thing like that's already a hugely important part of my life
1: yeah
0: and you give this one you go into detail this one point about uh that if a woman isn't necessarily fully engaged in her sex life in general, one thing to start with is 15 minutes of clitoral stimulation without expecting reciprocity or for it to even lead to orgasm or sex. And that you said over, I forget what period of time, but days, weeks, or months, I don't remember how long, um, that it begins to sort of um, connect something. It's not quite the right way.
1: Yeah, that, that's actually, and I'm, I think it's probably still unpublished. I keep on pestering her. This is Dr. Nicole Prousey's work, um, and she was a Kinsey Institute fellow. She was at Harvard. I think she did some of her postdocs. She was then at UCLA, and now she's an independent researcher. And she's done some of the more interesting and kind of cutting-edge work on sexuality, and especially women's sexuality, but not only, on basically orgasm as a replacement for prescription pharmaceuticals. Right. Because if you and, and this, you know, the the trailer breadcrumbs that I was kind of accidentally stumbled across was I was giving a talk at the battery club up in San Francisco with Jason Silva and Rick Doblin. And it was all about psychedelics and all these things. And then kind of in between a set break, Rick and I were talking and I was obviously always like I, I always pick the brain of my like, like like my idols. I'm like, tell me all this. And here's all the questions I have. And you probably know the answers. Right. So um, I was asking him, I was like, so what's happening? The neurochemistry of the MDMA trauma work and what you know and he's like well meaning that mdma helps people with trauma. yes and that's now in phase three clinical trials and it you know and it's be- being given special access you know as, as, as a special medicine inter- intervention because the results have been so strong so effectively the fda is sort of fast tracking it because it has such a power to potential power to help people and he's like well look it's it's high vasopressin high prolactin high oxytocin because you know the closest analog we can think of or have seen is, is the post orgasmic state. And you're like and you, and you read the studies and the accounts of those people suffering from trauma. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I had childhood sexual abuse or war trauma or whatever it would be. I've been jacked up. I haven't ever I haven't felt joy or happiness or a whole host of things we all deserve. And now I have. And now I realize that this is in me. Now I realize, yes, it was the medicine, but it was also this is me. And, and being able to reclaim those parts of themselves of just full feeling. You're like, oh, my God, like that that's, it makes you weep, right? It's just profoundly beautiful and hopeful that folks who have been so banged up and broken have a chance to heal. And you're like, well, wait a second, you know, like it's taken maps 30 years and tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars to navigate this process through federal law to take a Schedule One substance and a- make it available. And it's moving faster and faster, but there's still lots of things that need to be done. And you're like, but wait, you know, how else could we get people to that post-orgasmic state? <laughs> and you realize, oh, evolution through the kitchen sink at pair bonding, right? Now that has created all the taboos. It has created tons of our trauma and our suffering. You know, and and lots of In pain. Well, just think. I mean, go back to Helen of Troy and the face that launched a thousand ships. That sounds nice, but the, you know, the, the battle of Troy wasn't so pretty. You know, and th- right, and think about rape, think about incest, think about you know unintended pregnancies. I mean, the the stat that blew my mind is a simple one, but the, after doing all this research on the evolution, like the anthropology of sexuality. To realize that even today, I had to double check the stat because I thought I'd misread it. In the developed world, Western Europe and the United States, half of all pregnancies are accidents. So like half of us weren't supposed to be here, weren't welcomed by loving parents celebrating our arrival. It was a, oh, shit, fuck, whoops. And you just think of that. And you're like, what if every child was a wanted child? You know, we can put men on the moon and split atoms and we cannot figure out how to modulate our accidental desire to procreate. It's crazy. So, you know, jealousy, infidelity, divorces, betrayals, all of it, like evolution is utterly amoral. It does not care who we pledged what to when. All it wants to do is shake up the snow globe and create the most, you know, the most robust gene pool possible. And there's so many crazy, dirty tricks. Right. I mean, that notion of, you know, when women are on the pill, right, it it, it, it messes up their endocrine system and it let, puts them in a sort of a broody state. Like, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm pregnant, so I'm not going to conceive again. And um, they are drawn to safe, nurturing, kind, homekeeper kind of guys. And then they get married and then they go, oh. We're, we're married. This is okay now. I'm going to go off the pill. And then it's like, and they're like, wait a second, who's this weak chin motherfucker? I'm going to go out and shag a biker. Like, I want testosterone. I want danger. I want excitement. And they go out and shag that biker. And wouldn't you know it, they have, you know, Erica Jong's like zipless fuck. They have an amazing hot and heavy one night stand. They climax. And when a woman climaxes, especially with a new partner, ovulation can slide 72 hours either direction from her normal cycle. Oops, just got knocked up a by a, a rough and tumble baby daddy. And now what? you know or the classic 40-year-old guy who's like ah oh, why am I all soft in the middle the rest of my life is so hard like Paul Simon 101 I think I need to get a convertible and a and a tattoo or an earring and wouldn't you know it suddenly my little EA is looking really sexy or maybe I just just download Tinder just to see and the next thing I know I'm Blown up my wife and my life and my family. I'm in a seven-figure bitter divorce, all because actually what had happened is my testosterone was dropping at age 40, and the French call it l'affaire de la quarantaine, which is the affair of the 40s. They got a name for it, (laughs) you know. And wouldn't you know it? The the best thing to boost testosterone in a male is sex with a novel, younger partner. And you're like, oh my gosh, if I could now just send that email to a dozen of my friends, you know, and take take 10% cut on the, on, the, on the alimony payments, I'd be a rich man, I'd be retired, right? So you're like, so just things like that, where you're like, okay, so right now, we're puppets on a string, right? We're just getting jerked around by those incredibly potent evolutionary impulses, but what if we could hotwire evolution? What if you can say, okay, we've been reproducing for 100,000 years with no instruction manual, this is very, very, very strong encoding, and it's responsible for most of our grief. And, oh, by the way, Jared Diamond, UCLA anthropologist, wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel, makes a fascinating case that actually human sexuality is so weird. It is so different. The fact that we have sex often outside of ovulation, the fact that men have much, much larger penises proportional to body size than any other even primates, that women have big, wide, you know, curvy hips and full breasts even when they're not lactating – Right, that women have frequent orgasms. There's there's a whole host of things that we do and take for granted that almost no other animal in the animal kingdom does. And you're like, and, and his case was it was as essential to advancing our higher consciousness, how we went from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens as language and toolmaking. So you're like, okay, so now we're on to something, right? This is there's definitely a lot of like there's a lot of Easter eggs here. So now can we say, what if we untied the puppet strings? What if we hotwired evolution, and what if we took that psychosexual capacity, the flooding of norepinephrine, dopamine, endorphins, oxytocin, the slowering of heart rates, the increase in vagal nerve tone, all the things that pair bond us and deliver us to transcendent and interesting states, and can we use that as an engine for healing and growth, comparable to what Rick Doblin at Maps has been exploring with the MDMA PTSD therapy. So you're like, whoa, we could use this to heal each other? Like it's one of the simplest ways for humans to make each other feel really good in a world that's often hard, right? So at a minimum, we could do that better. And at a maximum, every single mystical tradition, I wouldn't say every single, because I'll be wrong if I say that, an awful lot (laughs) right? of, of wisdom traditions around the world, if you dig underneath the covers, there's a sexual yoga At the heart of those mystery schools, including Christianity, including Kabbalism, including obviously Shaiva, Tantra, Hinduism, Tibetan Buddhism, you name it, right? Where is
0: the sex magic in Christianity?
1: Oh my gosh, I mean, all over the place. I mean, you see a polluted, distorted version of it in our current sex abuse scandals in the church, right? Celibacy is a form of sex magic. It's cultivating and isolating, but it kept jumping the tracks in dysfunctional ways. Um, there's all, the early Gnostic Christians were were you know arguably i mean a women could be priests it was it was much more egalitarian and there were sexual rights and practices the western hermetic and magical tradition all the way through alistair crowley and some of the dudes who kind of put it in the you know put it in the ditch um, the idea the concept of eroto lucidity you know, eroto, just to do with sexuality, comatose, lowering our, you know, I mean, technically lowering our brainwaves out of conscious waking stuff down into theta and delta. And then lucidity, I'm still here, right? I'm still awake, I still have consciousness. That was the domain. So sexuality is A, evolutionary, biological, let's, you know, accidentally or purposefully make babies. B, done together with a high trust, loving partner can be an amazing way to Discharge the day-to-day trauma, and even go deeper into healing, and then see potentially a vehicle for transpersonal experience. And like Yeshé Yeshe Sogil is a, is a phenomenal story. She's a Tibetan tantrika. And she was a total badass. She was a princess. She ran away from home to, to ditch an arranged marriage. She then did like, like this trial of Hercules. She, she ended up like fighting and beheading a tiger. She comes back to her That's, home province. Is this oh, yeah, real? Dude, well, I mean, she's a mythological, you okay, know. I was going to
0: say, this, this is like a chick working in the Bronx now? I was like, wait a
1: second. <laughs> Jenny on the block, right? So, so she's, she, um, she was actually Padmasambhava, who, who, who is one of the baddest ass like Tibetan, um, you know, godmen who brings the dharma to tibet she was his consort and in the legends she's the one who woke up first right and actually switched him on so she comes back to her home province after being initiated as a tantrika and gets raped by seven bandits right but she's such a badass that 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 the men all fall to their knees weeping like she just allows it and they all fall to their knees weeping and then pledge to be her bodyguards for life and like that story, right, is, is, is beautiful in encapsulation. I mean, including the fact that she denied the socially defined roles, she became an initiate, she transformed sexual violence into loyalty and dedicated service, and then woke up the dude we all hear about, Padmasambhava, as one of <laughs> the bringers of, of dharma to all of Tibet. So, so a lot of the studies, of Shen Padmasambhava himself said, he said, uh, you know, a human body is the strongest vehicle for enlightenment versus kind of you know asceticism or like starving yourself or kind of denying it all. She goes, but if if a woman is inclined, a woman's body is better. So that kind of gets you back to that old Calypso tune, you know. That's right, the women are smarter.
0: Uh, is there any explanation? Like, are we meant to take that literally, or is that a reference to like the divine feminine versus the divine masculine?
1: I mean, gosh, I have no idea. Um, but it, for sure, I mean, if you just take, you know, a woman's role in conceiving, gestating and nursing life, it sure to me would seem that they've got an awful lot more going on than we do. And even if you took a look at sexual and biological response, I mean, there's a fellow who was um, at Harvard Medical School, uh, an OBGYN guy who said, you know, women need a reason men just need a a place kind of thing so like i mean you know it's a lot of reductionism but in general i would say men are simpler you know and women have just an awful lot more going on and and is that possibly and, and you know and they grow life right i mean that's kind of back to why there have always been not always, but often taboos around menstruation, taboos around those kind of things is because like, what on earth do you do? We sure as hell can't come anywhere near that magic.
0: It's interesting to me that that manifests as a taboo versus manifesting as like, whoa, this must have something to do with that incredibly important thing that you do that without which, you know, we would cease to exist. Um, yeah, that's surprising. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised that you're... People are bound to take things in a very weird way, given enough sort of um, collisions, enough people approaching it, that things will get bizarre. But it's weird to me that that's that borders on universal.
1: Well, I mean, look, to put it in perspective, I mean, if you think about even the prisoner experiment and things like that, you know, the the one that has since been critiqued as, as as that. I was it, Stan Stanley Pilgrim or Pilgrim, something like that. The Stanford professor who did the prison experiment of like, you know, make people gods and prisoners and they, you know, the gods treat people shittily that was just an effort to figure out what the fuck happened in Nazi Germany, right? Like World War II was a crazy thing and Hannah Arendt called it the banality of evil, right? She was, I think she was at Ehrlichman's trial and she's like, wait a second, these guys were just bureaucrats doing horrible, horrible things on behalf of humanity. So like, to put it in perspective, there's there's this Pulitzer Prize winning book called Overstory. It came out it was a fiction it came out in 2019. It's a beautiful book about this, really about hope and about growth and about trees and all this kind of stuff. But he has a great phrase within there. He's like he's like to put this in perspective. Anatomically modern man showed up at you know if, if all of life on this earth was a 24-hour day. Anatomically modern man shows up at 4 seconds before midnight. Cave paintings show up at 1 second before midnight. And we've been playing the civilization game for a fraction of a fucking second. So to just give ourselves some humility and a sense of we have no idea what this monkeys with clothes game is. And we barely understand how we operate or why we do what we do or how to understand it or how to be better at it or how to be born into this life that's nasty, brutish and short and harvest enough energy credits to stay alive through, you know, feasts and famine and, and and winters and to, and to then assign meaning and purpose for ourselves and for each other. Like, and we're only just now beginning to get a handle on it. We're like, Oh, whoops, looks like we might've overclocked a whole bunch of things and the pots are boiling over. This is a little like, you know, like Mickey and the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, like, Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to turn on fossil fuels and nuclear power. We're going to get us do all our dishes. And then we're like, Oh no, things are getting a little out of hand. So, so to just give us some, some tenderness and some forgiveness, you know, like, 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 like back to your, your political thing of like, you know, it's both, it's liberal and conservative. Like, is it free market? Is it, is it, is it free markets or social safety nets? You know, is it, is it supply side economics like Keynes or, 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 um, you know, or free markets like Milton Friedman? Is it revolution or evolution? Is it church or state? You know, is it carrots or sticks in, 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 in national policy? Like, you know, we don't know we're not sure (laughs) you know we can't even figure out whether like eggs and butter and coffee are like awesome or are gonna murder us in our sleep (laughs) you know like so so give us ourselves i think we all get a mulligan to forgive ourselves and each other and to keep on keeping on and there is you i I think you you know you rightly said hey wait this is getting a little abstract and esoteric right like let's ground this and and i think the simplest is the idea of when we have the capacity, like life, life hurts. We know that it like can, it's tragic, but, and that, and that's, that'll beat us down. If, if that's all we've got, it's sometimes magic, right? And that's easier to forget. <laughs> and, and, and when we find ourselves whipsawed between those two, like, all you can do is kind of laugh. You can be like, that's the cosmic joke. And then it's comic. And we share it with each other, right? We share those laughs at the absurdity of this all. Right. It makes me
0: think about what you talk about in the book, which is really interesting. The concept of the trickster. Yes. What, what did you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, this, um, it was, it actually came out of Elaine Pagel. She's a scholar at Princeton. Um, she's one of the baddest ass, uh, religious scholars, I think in, in the world actually. And she was, One of the original translators of the Nag Hammadi scrolls that when she was over at Oxford and they were these like Indiana Jones papyrus things like hidden gospels, the gospel of Magdalene, the gospel of Thomas, all these other ones that what that didn't make it into the canonical Bibles and tell a completely different story of first century Christianity. And it's way radder, much, much more interesting um you know and again like women's priest and sexuality and music and art very bohemian and very mystic and initiatory and then you know th- and then paul takes it and he's like oh no fuck that that'll never scale you know let everybody in jew gentile like pack them deep selling cheap pass the collection plate like that's how we grow this thing and so we got robbed of that whole living lineage but she also Pagels took a look back at the Old Testament and specifically the book of Job and Job's that famous story where Satan and, and, and Yahweh have this bet and, and Yahweh's like, see, he's my, he's my man. He does everything I says he's a pious dude. And, so, and Satan's like, ah, yeah, bullshit. He's only doing that because his life is awesome. Like, you know, see, see how faithful he is when fortune turns away. So Yahweh then goes and kicks the shit out of Joby, right? And, and nothing good happens to the dude and Joby gets really pissed off and all this kind of stuff. And this is kind of one the, of you know, these weird Old Testament stories that people try and make sense of. But in Pagel's scholarship, she found out that, in fact, there were at least a couple of authors across, spread across centuries and that the first version didn't have Satan in it. It was just Yahweh being a dick to Job. And, right, and that's a hard one if you've established that your God is all powerful and all good. Right? If he's all good, he wouldn't do such shitty things. If he was, and, and, but if he wasn't powerful, then, then, then he wouldn't be able to prevent them. And 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 this became this weird splinter in the mind of Western spirituality and philosophy, and what it led to was eventually the author number two had to create Satan because he's like this doesn't pencil out it doesn't make any sense so he put in this plot device of Satan the opposer, and then that all cascades down to you know 20th century you know, you look at the Auschwitz problem how could God right both be all powerful and allow the gas chambers to happen if he did he wasn't good if he was good he would never let that happen what do we do with this and what we ha- and and in that that western tradition created a schizophrenic split where the like god is all powerful and all good everything happens for a reason all the bad shit has to be the force it has to be the actions of some other dark force and pagels i mean it's it's heartbreaking but it, it was the it's the source of her wisdom she lost her 6 year old son to a congenital disease and she lost her husband to a freak mountaineering accident in aspen within 12 months within 12 months so she's like okay so i am wrecked with grief and i'm this profound scholar of this western tradition how do i look to these texts and make sense of this and she's like you know western theologians talk about the problem of evil as if bad shit isn't baked into the script and she's like, "No other tradition does this. So you look at the Greek gods, right The Greek gods do all kinds of awesome stuff and they bring fire to man and gifts and all these kinds of things, but they're also fickle and petty and jealous, right <laughs> They are eventually they do all the things right and they're just like the people that worship them and you look at indigenous traditions, Tome, and you know and, and, and the brer rabbit, you know even Bugs bunny is a descendant right of actually West African trickster mythologies, and the ideas of the tricksters in fact um Neil Gaiman's book, uh, American Gods, there's a, there's a TV show about it right now as well. And I was watching it. And there's this colonial woman and a, and a leprechaun shows up. He's actually like six foot six. He's a giant dude. <laughs> but he shows up and he's a leprechaun. And she's like, oh, you're one of the fairy folk. I want to thank you so much for all the amazing things you've done. And he's like, ah, you know, you know we're like, we're like the wind, baby. We blow both ways. Good and ill. And that idea that life is tragic and magic it's not just perfect and it's not just hashtag universe everything happens for a reason um allows us to take the hits without having a an an ontological break in our mind without tearing our mind when our hearts break because if people subscribe to the secret or people subscribe to new thought you can see this with plandemic and QAnon. you can see that mind virus like this is the back door it goes in which is Everything has to be happening for a reason, and everything that I can't explain has to be the work of dark and sinister forces over there, versus good luck, bad luck, who knows? And so reintroducing the trickster, like when we try and suppress that trickster energy, when we try and suppress the random and fickle and unknowable nature of existence, right, we tend to create more trauma, We tend to create more heartache versus just bearing witness in the not knowing of it all.
0: All right. So this is all so it's such a fresh take. Now, let's put it back in context of this idea of, hey, maybe we can use all these tools Understand our neurochemistry, understand where religion comes from, understand that something like the devil is a plot device that you add to this. And yet we have this need to make this meaning. We have a need to get control of our neurochemistry. We have a need to explore our bodies, if for no other reason than to recognize that we have a perspective, a frame of reference that's either helping us or it's not. And now you talk about this omega moment, which I think is that fall. Right. So we we drop to you know, that potential end that is part of the death and rebirth cycle, put in put in a more spiritual context where you were talking about all these traditions have this death and rebirth rebirth notion in the way that even an orgasm is le petit mort, right? The little death. Okay, so we've got that grand context. We've got to do the work. We've got to reconnect to our body. We have to um, understand that we are just as prone to sort of the banality of evil as anybody else because we are an ape with clothes uh <laughs> and now though we're we want to transcend all of that to become something that's more um globally minded so mm-hmm. how do we take everything that we just learned over the last two hours and mm-hmm. um connect it to this idea and I, I think you'll have to put a very fine point on what it is like what is the omega point
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: how do we use that as like the springboard into something better.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the simplest, right. It, it, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be intellectually honest to like unpack rapture ideologies and say anything that has a hockey stick happily ever after is, you know, suspect. And then just, you know, like um, take the piss out of all of those and then just smuggle in one at the end. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's structurally identical, just new, new rapper, right? Like that wouldn't work. So my sense is, is that there's, there's no place to go. Right. This is this is it. This is the freedom of no escape. Because and we're at a
0: moment of crisis. Well, just 90 this is seconds the experience.
1: To well, just I mean, I mean, yes, that like that can say, hey, you know, maybe you don't want to spend the rest of your time YouTube binging or Netflixing. Like, like there's purpose where we're, the time is now and, and, and our contributions matter. But I wouldn't say with because because that that Evie White thing of like I'm torn, I wake up in the morning torn between the desire to save the world or savor it. Right, and and that can make it hard to plan the day. That's that's kind of where
0: we are. That's good, man. I've never heard that before.
1: Oh, check it out. But but his next sentence is even better. He says, and then I conclude that in fact the savoring has to come first, because if there was nothing to savor, right, there was nothing worth savoring. There would be nothing worth saving. So we right, we have to come back to you and and Howard Thurman, right, the theologian that inspired Martin Luther King. Right. He has a he has a beautiful quote. It's a little bit Instagram hashed at this point. But um, he says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more of us who have come alive. Right. And so that gets back to the death, rebirth thing. So, what it can look like over time, and this actually happened, this happened to me and Julie, my wife. We were having a big ass fight over the kitchen table, and she was super pissed about, or just still hurt, like legitimately hurt about things, just fuck up, you know, careless, dickhead things I'd done in like at age 18 to 21 when we had just met. You know, like it was still in the foundations of our relationship. And on the other hand, we've been having all these wonderful, magical experiences. And it felt like and I was like, hey, we've already won. Like we've done this. Like everything's redeemed that got us here. Why are you still stuck back there? Come on up with me, which is kind of my classic move. Come on up here, right? <laughs> like, I don't want to deal with back there. Come up here. And I, and I just kind of had this vision. I was like, oh, it looks like a Jesus fish, right? It looks like that kind of classic bumper sticker, like the, the nose of the fish is where we're born and where the two lines cross is kind of the tail and where we all die. And all of us have that biographic life, right? We all have the arc of our life. And along the way, we take hits. Those are our traumatic events. If we're lucky, from time to time, we'll have a peak experience, And that could be a camp out where you saw shooting stars. It could be your first rock concert where everybody's holding up their lighters or these days their phones, not nearly as cool, Uh, right? And you're like, yeah, we're all singing along and we were all one together. It could be, you know, your first true love, whatever it was, you have a peak experience. And, And you're like, I cherish that, but I don't really know what it was or how to get back there, right? But then you have another one. You're like, okay, sweet. I thought that was a one and done. I'm super glad I'm back here again. Still nothing. Then the third time, three points make a line. That line makes a trend. That trend makes a plot. And you're like, oh shit, I might actually have a kind of a mythic life that is this complement to my biographic life. Right. And every time I have a peak experience, I feel inspiration, like woohoo. And I experience a, a forgetting of the forgetting. I remember who I am up here. I remember my deepest purpose. And I also actually quite often get like a printout of like, and here's the places all oh, you're banged up and broken and out of integrity. Right. So I'm like, ah, now I can go back and I can start mending those trauma points because I, I'm I'm filled with juice right now. Right? I've got love to spare. This goes back to that super saturated neurochemistry. Right. I feel expensive. I feel safe. I feel resourced. And I can actually go back and do some of the work I've been I've been avoiding or have just been too blocked to get to. Now, when we have that experience, you have those. You, you first start articulating your mythic life, and this is true for lots of people in the New Age space, the Kanchi space, the psychedelic Renaissance—you name it. They're like, ah, I like it up here. I'm not going back. I'm never going back, right? It's like apocalypse now, you know? Like, like, and and you, you get stuck in a spiritual bypass. So I quit my job, I change my name, I start wearing long, flowy stuff and excessive jewelry, and you know, and, and and flowy sandals, and we go to cacao ceremonies and sound baths, and you're like, no, no, no that's not it either. Right. And and something that happens there is that we'll have a breakthrough on our mythic arc and we'll be like, oh, my gosh, I'm a new person. Like I now understand all the things that I was doing that were broken, wrong, out of whack, whatever. And you come back home quite often to a spouse or a partner, family, kids, whatever the the people who have been with you along. And you're like, hey, guess what? Great news, everybody. I'm a new person. And they're like, fuck you, you know, and you're like, oh, you don't get it you don't you don't understand i'm absolutely amazing and you you know the classic is the you know Saul the tax collector on the road to damascus becomes paul right he's like hey baby you know i understand i mean i was a son of a bitch and i collected everybody's taxes even when they didn't have any money and, 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 but i'm paul now can't you see and what happens is we get out of time with each other so our leading edge in our ecstatic life or our mythic life gets gets crosswired to the people around us, the people who love us, they're bleeding edge, the place back in time where we wounded them or hurt them or broke their trust. And they're not willing to sign off on our leading edge until we're we're willing to come back and make amends and atone and help them at their bleeding edge. And so that's the beautiful human part. Like we don't have lineages anymore. We don't have, you know, trustworthy gurus and teachers to defer to, but we do have each other Right. And so we can use that. And then over time, if we do the work, we can raise our biographic life and we can bend down our mythic life. And then they come to that intersection at the fish's tail. Right. And that's the place where we can die and be reborn again. That is the place of becoming that that's the resurrection practice. That's the place where we're like, oh, okay. Now instead of me trying to escape my mundane existence, I'm coming back to it. And I'm coming back to it with fresh eyes and an open heart and gratitude. So you see, this is Dorothy and Wizard of Oz, there's no place like hum, right? She comes back to that broke ass, dusty ranch in Kansas. And she's like, wait, Tin Man and Scarecrow, you're like, you guys are the ranch hands. Oh my gosh, you've been here all along. It's Jimmy Stewart in A Wonderful Life, right? I died and was reborn. The angel visited me and I come back. It's Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. We have, I mean, the stories are everywhere. And the key is that at what point do we stop trying to escape or transcend or bypass this human experience, and instead we come back to it with tears of gratitude and and fearless commitment? And, and the best example, I think, in the traditions is the Zen Oxiding parables, right, which is there are these ten beautiful penning sketches, you know, mapping out the path of enlightenment, and and I remember reading it. I was like, oh shit, this is super awesome. Let me, where how does, what's it, what it, what's the roadmap? And and I got to number four, and that was where four of ten, and that was the end. That that was when you get enlightenment. And I was like, wait, I thought that was the end. How the hell is this panel four? What happens next? And then there were like all these crazy esoteric Zen distinctions that I didn't really understand at that time. And then, but panel number ten, it, it it's this. Dude with a you know, like like a Buddha dude with a walking stick. And it says, it says, even his 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 doors and windows are locked. Even the wisest sages and scholars cannot find him. He is down in the marketplace among the people with helping hands. So you're like, when the extraordinary can become absolutely ordinary. And when we can come back to this life, not looking to wiggle off the hook, but to willingly step up on the cross and to say this, like like that our humanity, right, is only realized and expressed at the intersection of our divinity and our mortality, right? That we are here with beating hearts, that we get knocked down, but we get back up again, that we testify with redemption songs, right? Like that's soul force, like that's the thing. And we know it. I mean, if you think about Beyonce, I'm a Survivor. You think about Dolly Parton. You think about the Grateful Dead. You think about gospel, jazz, soul, blues. Like, those answers are in our living scriptures. They're in our American songbook. It's like this secret hermetic tradition, right, about how do we do this thing. And we've been making art about it for centuries. So, like, we already know. We Like, all the tools are all around us. And it's just time to kind of dust them off, freshen them up put them back together, and then share them.
0: Man, well said. Well said. Brought all together. The, the book, man, was really, really incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people um, hang out with you online or get the book?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the simplest is recapture the rapture. Dot com. And that's the home for the book, but it's also for the toolkit. There's all kinds of you know, access and things that people can use and take away. There's chances to plug in with community, train, support different research projects, all that kind of stuff there. So recapturetherapture.com. We're on Instagram at Flow Genome, so F-L-O-W, genome, uh, for both Instagram and Facebook. And then an intermittent series on Clubhouse on Friday afternoons uh, by the name Recapture the Rapture as well.
0: Nice. I love it. Well, brother, thank you so much for joining me. And by the way, guys, speaking of things that you will love, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.